good to uh, good to see everyone interacting, everyone in person. Thinking back to a year ago, and it was just six of us in here, and I was on the back on my laptop because that was my job at the time to manage a live stream. It's really refreshing to see people here, people interacting and fellowshipping together. Uh, do welcome you joining us on the live stream and are excited for when you can rejoin us in person and those in the gym. Uh, thank you for being here and for your commitment to the word of the Lord and the people of God. This morning we're in the book of Titus and we are finishing the book. So we're in Titus chapter 3 and we're starting in verse 8 this morning. If you would like to turn there, that would be helpful for us. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use the Bible that is in the seat in front of you. Uh, Those Bibles will be on the seats that don't have things in the pockets. Uh, Those are the seats with Bibles in them. So grab one of those, and if you don't have a Bible at home, take that with you, and that is our gift to you uh, this morning. I'm Pastor AJ. I work primarily with the high school group, and then also I oversee the children's ministry, and I get to preach to you this morning from Titus 3, and I'm excited about that. Wonderful passage and, and wonderful section to end the book of Titus. Paul's heart for the Cretans and for Titus especially just comes out so clearly here. And so I'm very excited about that. Last week, uh, Pastor Ron taught on uh, this section in Titus that talks about who we were and who we became in Christ. Believers once were uh, a certain way passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But but God stepped in and God changed the hearts of believers and God changed us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of his spirit. That's all important background for us as we step into the passage today because our, our new identity is being found in Christ. And so uh, especially for Titus and the Cretans as, as this was addressed to them, their identity can no longer be what it was in the world before Christ. Their, their function, their interaction must be different, and it must conform to uh, Jesus Christ and his work and what he desires of us. So t- Paul now exhorts us toward righteous living. I'm going to read for you the whole section, 8 through 15, and then we're going to break it apart uh, into three shorter sections. So start with me, Titus 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So you... Get a preview there of Paul's heart, especially for the Cretans and for, for Titus. Uh, a lot of times at the end of these letters, we have these uh, very compact, very uh, succinct words that are, that are intentionally used by Paul 
to address his heart of the message. So summarizing the book and summarizing the heart of the message, our, our series has been Undistracted Godliness, and that is central here this morning as well. So point number one in your notes, those who have believed in God must devote themselves to good works. Those who have believed in God must devote themselves to good works. So believed and must are your points there. Verses 8 and 9 says this, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So Paul says that he stresses and insists on these things. I want you to insist on these things. I want, I want these things to be uh, of the utmost importance. I want these things uh, to be what you press into the people. The takeaway for the Cretans here is to devote themselves to good works. And in devoting themselves to good works, they must then abstain or avoid these other things that they've been devoted to. And he says that this saying is trustworthy and true. And which saying is he referring to? I, I believe that it's verses 4 through 7 from the text. Uh, Pastor Ron again taught on that last week. Talked about the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Uh, re-emphasizing that, that same point from 4 through 7 and saying, this is a trustworthy and true saying. And so we must then act out like this. He's also reflecting there on verse 1 with this saying, referring back to that, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. It's going to be three times in this section that he uses that. Be ready for every good work. Devote yourselves to good work. Learn to do good works. Those who believe in God must devote themselves to good work. They must. They must. These good works, uh, you've probably heard that term before, good works. And it might be hard to, to summarize or, or figure out exactly what the Bible means when it says good works, what exactly qualifies as a good work. Uh, I'm going to try to give you a, a succinct definition that hopefully you can carry through and, and maybe apply to some of these. Uh, good works are fruitful kingdom acts of God's grace that glorify him above all else. Sacrificial love of God and neighbor. Sacrificial love of God and neighbor. It flows out in many different ways. Uh, so you get a definition there. Uh, this, this love of God and this love of neighbor that Jesus emphasizes as the golden rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two things are, are what should drive us as believers, and what should drive the Cretans as believers, that they shouldn't be like the rest of the world, trying to gain an upper hand on each other, or trying to gain position or, or status. Rather, they should be devoting themselves to the Lord, devoting themselves to doing good works so that his kingdom might be advanced, and not our kingdom. These good works are fruitful kingdom acts of God's grace that glorify him above all else. This is all, again, based on the, on the true belief in God must flow out in good works. And some of you have James running through your mind right now, as it should. James 4, 14 through 17. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord, if the Lord wills, we will Live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. That's the wrong section. James, I think it's James 2, isn't it? That's where I went. 
See, and here I was. I was like, I'm going to put that in my notes, and then it's going to be so much easier. There you go, James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone can say he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The other section was the sin of partiality, which you should read, but might not necessarily apply here. So faith without works is dead. And uh, Paul gathers this as well and, and desires to apply this to the people as well. Um, a true belief in God must flow out in good works. You're not saved by your works, but if you believe in God, you will do good works. And that's that balance that we weigh as Christians all the time, that, that the good works is not something that earns you anything, but it's something that comes natural as a believer. As your heart is changed, as your spirit is reoriented toward uh, the Lord's kingdom and toward his work, then you will flow out in good works. These are worth pursuing and are beneficial for believers. And then Paul says, he says, avoid these things, but avoid. So as you're devoting yourselves to good works, you're now avoiding these other things. What are these things? These are distractions to the kingdom. And for the Cretans, it was very specific. And I think for us, we have some specific general ones too. Uh, Pastor Ron's going to do a series coming up here soon on deep idols, and we'll we'll delve right into there. And a lot of toes will be stepped on, so wear steel-toe boots if you come in. Uh, so he says to avoid these things. Literally, to turn oneself in an about-face motion. So turn oneself 180 degrees the other way. Avoid. Don't look at them. Don't entertain them. You'll remember from uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, as, as Paul began this letter to Titus, he addressed some of these false teachers, these heretics that came up, and started to pull people away from the truth. So Paul's heart for Titus and the Cretans was that they would know the truth, that they'd pursue the truth, and his heart for the false teachers was that they would turn to right doctrine, that they wouldn't be planted in falsehood. Titus 1, 10 through 16 for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, Judaizers. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So have that in your mind as, as Paul addresses then here in Titus 3, this next section. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. Again, reflecting what was in one, these same Judaizers are, are pushing these, these false teachings upon the Cretans. Dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul's heart for Timothy, we, we talked a lot about how Titus is mirroring First Timothy in a lot of ways, uh, was very similar. You could see in First Timothy 1, 4 and 6, 4 uh, that he had a very similar heart for Timothy, that the people avoid these things and pursue the Lord. These things are not beneficial, they're not up, uplifting, they're not encouraging the church, they're not advancing the kingdom, and so avoid these things don't spend your time on them. So the Jewish character of the Cretan heresy is brought up again. 
He says to avoid foolish controversies. Uh, the word here is stupid. Avoid stupid controversies. Don't get wrapped up in them. The, the false teachers are, are, as Paul says, stupid. They're, they're, not, they're not teaching with knowledge. They're not teaching people to pursue the truth or to be planted in the truth. They're not building up the church. They're not advancing forward in Christ's likeness. And their desire is to get them swayed, like he said in Titus 1, after these things. He asked them not to be to, to avoid genealogies. Many felt like they gained an upper hand based on their Jewish genealogy, talking about how they, they had been uh, from a certain family or a certain line in Judaism and how that gives them special status or standing uh, based on who they are or who their ancestors were. And in that society, that carried weight. But if you remember Christ's teaching, the identity of a believer is no longer tied to their nuclear family. The identity of a believer is tied to their church, to the brothers and sisters in the church. I was, I was meditating this week on Jesus at the cross and how he said to John, Behold your mother, behold your son, when Mary was there. And I, for some reason it didn't click till this week. James is alive. Jesus' blood brothers are alive. What's Jesus doing there? He's reorienting the entire focus of family to say, yes, she has natural children, but those natural children aren't the most important thing. It's those who are pursuing the kingdom. I hope that that's encouraging for you this morning. If you're in here and you are single, or if you are feeling like you don't have family here in the nuclear sense, that this family in this church is far more important than that if they're believers. I think that we can make a robust biblical case for that, and I believe that we will in the coming weeks. The family of believers is that which we are tied most deeply to. I had a, a, a talk with the high schoolers this week about that very same thing, that, that this is family, and that we treat each other as family, we love each other as family. And so there's a, there's a very true reality and true sense in where uh, believers are family. It's not just church family. It's family. A hundred applications to that about how you'll rub each other the wrong way and how you'll have to work through it. Family. So the genealogies then don't bear weight because who you came from doesn't matter if it's not Jesus. Our bloodline is through Christ and not through people. They had similar situations to that of the Ephesians. You can again read 1 Timothy 1 4 or 1 Timothy 6 4 for that same idea there. Uh, falling into these false teachings in the early church of you have to syncretize Judaism with Christianity and there has to be this mesh of both. Jesus started something new, carrying on what the Old Testament taught, but with a new covenant and a new way in to the family of God. It says to avoid these discussions, these quarrels about the law, specifically these uh, quarrels about the Mosaic law. Again, that same, that same thread that you see carried through of uh, we have to syncretize Judaism with Christianity. We have to 
follow these things in this way, and if we do, we'll gain this upper hand. Uh, you can think of the Pharisees in the New Testament desiring to pursue the Lord, yet missing it because they were trying to gain an upper hand by completing and fulfilling all these laws, and that wasn't how we received the grace of God. So why does he tell them to avoid these things? He tells them to avoid these things because they are unprofitable and they are worthless. They're wasting their time. These things don't build up the body. They don't advance the kingdom. Again, we're going to have a modern application to that there at the end. Point number two, avoid people who stir up division in order that they might repent and be restored. I'm going to grab that uh, restoration idea from chapter one as well. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. One who stirs up division should be addressed directly. This, this warped and sinful person who is desiring the church to be divided is literally working against what Jesus prayed for the church. John 17. Father, my desire is that they be one as you and I are one. That they be united. And Jesus says that they'll know that they are Christians by their love. They'll know you are followers of mine by your love for one another. This unity in the church is central. You can even think back to Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira come up and they, they lie about what they did. Trying to, to come into the church and pretend like there's something there they're not. The Lord's protecting the unity of the church there through the uh, apostle Peter. This division here is specifically uh, through the words used, one who stirs up division by their views. One who stirs up divisions by their views or opinions. And so uh, they'd, they'd be having a conversation. This person would come up to me like, uh, well, this person did this, and I don't think that's right. It's not one who stirs up division because they're saying, oh, that's sinful. You're in sin. You need to repent. That's uh, what you need to do as believers. That's basic. It's one who stirs up division by their opinions, things that are not biblical or from Scripture. He says that they may have up to two warnings, and after that they're to be avoided. Uh, I, I don't think that avoided here carries the same weight as what Matthew 18 says. And I think you can make that argument from the grammatical structure and from the words used in the Greek. Matthew 18 talks about how uh, Jesus says you, you address your brother, you bring uh, another person, you tell it to the church, and if they don't repent, then you excommunicate them. It doesn't seem like that's what's being happened here. Uh, based on what happens in Titus 1 and what happens here in Titus 3, I don't think that it's excommunication. I believe that it's uh, this idea of you're just not counting their opinion anymore. If they keep throwing their opinion to divide the church, they just won't be considered anymore. Because the purpose isn't to kick them out. The purpose is to restore them. There is a time and a place for Matthew 18 to be exercised. I don't believe it's in this context. And I might be wrong. Uh, basically not to consider their words, not excommunication. So this action might seem harsh, but looking at it, it's far from harsh. The people are dividing the church. The people are working against what Jesus desired for his people. It shouldn't be counted as harsh. They're not doing anything helpful for building up the church. 
but rather they're seeking their own pleasure. So Paul says, he says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. They're trying to gather for themselves some standing or notoriety just by causing uh, division, just by uh, making a scene or, or causing people to turn from the truth. The purpose behind rebuking them is to restore them to a proper doctrine and that they may be sound in the faith. And again, I'm getting that from Titus 1.13. I believe that this is a, a pretty clear mirror of that same section, just a summary. And so Titus 1.13 says, this testimony is true, again, talking about this false teaching. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So his desire is that in this rebuke, in this shooting down of their false doctrine, that they be sound in the faith. They come back to a true knowledge and a true repentance in the faith. Point number three, and we're going to spend a little bit more time here. Believers in God must learn to devote themselves to good works. So you now have two points in here that are about good works. Uh, and one of the applications will be as well. But that's, that's Paul's heart here for the Cretans and for Titus. He says, when I send Artemis... Or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So believers must learn to devote themselves to good works. So we have a few people mentioned here. Artemis is the first one mentioned. You will remember Artemis from nowhere else in Scripture. This is the only place he's mentioned. We don't know much about Artemis, but what we do know is from context clues. We see that Artemis is a trusted companion of Paul, a co-laborer in the faith, somebody that he trusts enough to send to Crete to take the place of Titus so that Titus may come and visit Paul. So Artemis is a trusted companion of Paul, a trusted fellow laborer of Paul, trusted enough to come to Crete and fulfill Titus's ministry while Titus leaves for a little bit. Tychicus, on the other hand, we've seen him before. In fact, it seems like Tychicus's job is really to uh, give pastors sabbaticals. First uh, Timothy 4 is where we see Tychicus the other time, and he relieved Timothy of his work for a little bit so that Timothy can come be with Paul. So Tychicus has this unique job in the New Testament where he comes and goes, giving pastors a break. Uh, and I think that's such a cool job. Uh, he gets to see all these different places. He gets to come in and he gets to help lead for a little bit. And he gets to help the kingdom advance in this way. Uh, I remember from the first few weeks we were in Titus, uh, Pastor Ron talked about how uh, Titus didn't want to spend the winter here. He didn't want to spend the winter in Crete. He had to go somewhere else, otherwise he couldn't get out. So he, he is going to spend the winter in Nicopolis. This is a safer place for him to work uh, and spend the winter. There, the problem with Nicopolis is that there's like five cities named Nicopolis, so it's hard to figure out where exactly this is. From history and from some context clues, that being it's okay to spend the winter here, uh, it seems like this is in Epirus, uh, a, a city in Epirus where uh, it's safe to spend the winter, the weather's good enough, you can still... I uh, get what you need there. Uh, it's, again, it's really hard to confirm exactly which one. Uh, 
but this is, seems to be Paul's go-to for spending the winter. Uh, and, and Paul here is, is asking people to come to him during the winter, and it's not the only time he does it. He also does it in 2 Timothy 4.21, ask people to come to him, to spend time with him during the winter. And I think, I think these are sometimes flyover sections in Scripture, where we get to the end of a book and we just fly over and we kind of ignore everything that's happening because Paul's doing housekeeping and it's almost like you're eavesdropping on another conversation. So you're like, I'll just forget about that part. I do think this is important, though. I think what we see in Paul's heart is that he, he does ministry with people. And he sees this need for people. He sees this need to, to fellowship with Titus. He sees that as, as helpful for his ministry and for Titus's ministry. I think that every time I come up here, I talk to you guys about how it's not good that man be alone. That, that was the first thing that God said about man, right? And the, the important part of the church is that we're together. In fact, it, Moses, it was helpful for Moses that he had people as well. Uh, it, more importantly, though, that he had the Lord leading. He asked, how, how will we go out if, if, if they don't know that you're with us? And the people go out with God, and, and Moses goes out with the people. You see in Acts this, this necessity of believers being together. They were of one heart and mind, and, and no one lacked anything but they daily devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and they had all things in common. This is the heart of the church. So Paul practices it. He practices exactly what he preaches. His desire is to be with people, to be encouraged by them, to fellowship with believers, and that that would build them up. He wants Zenos the lawyer to come. He said, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Zenos the lawyer, again, is someone we don't know outside of this context. First time mentioned, last time mentioned. But the context clues are, again, that he is important to Paul, and that Paul would love to see him again to fellowship with him. He's a close brother that Paul misses. Close brother that Paul misses. Go read Romans 16, and, and you can look at how many brothers and sisters Paul misses. Paul has this deep relationship with the people he ministers with. He doesn't just say to them, avoid genealogies and devote yourself to the family of God for superficial reasons. Rather, this is what Paul lives. He devotes himself to the family of God. He has believers all over Asia Minor that are devoted to the Lord and that are in Paul's heart and in Paul's prayers. So Zenos the lawyer sees this and he knows that he gets to see Paul as well. And then he says, and Apollos, send Apollos on on their way. And that, if you know Apollos, that's significant. Uh, the first time they meet Apollos is in the book of Acts. And Apollos is doing ministry and he doesn't, he doesn't know fully the gospel. And so they teach him and they remind him of these things. And Apollos goes out and does wonderful ministry. One of the unsung heroes of the New Testament because we really only see him in ten different passages. Uh, we see him a couple times in Acts, and then he comes up a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. He comes up here. Uh, Apollos doesn't really get the newspaper headlines. Apollos just goes out and does the work. And, and you see it come up in 1 Corinthians. People are divided. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Cephas. Some say, I follow Christ. There was division. There was division between Paul and Apollos' followers. So Paul in verse 10 says, As a person who stirs a division, avoid them. 
Paul doesn't carry over bad blood from people following Apollos or from these people devoting themselves to him. He loves Apollos. He sees that the gospel is preached through Apollos. He sees that people are baptized and the kingdom is being advanced. There's not competition. There's not division among them. But there's this deep love and care. Paul sees him as a fellow laborer, one with whom he works to win souls for Christ. Paul loves the gospel. He has this deep heart for the gospel and that people would learn it, that they would apply it to their lives, and they would live it out. So he has this deep value for Apollos and for his ministry. These people, he says, Zenos and Apollos, are to help, to help them on their way. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're in Crete. Uh, it means that they'll probably meet them along the way, and they're supposed to help them to get to where they need to be. Uh, whether that's financially or through hospitality or through encouragement of the word, we don't have specifics, but that's the job of Titus, uh, to meet them and encourage them on their way to Nicopolis, where they'll meet Paul. In the earlier sections, Paul says to devote yourselves to good works. In verse 1, uh, he says to be ready for every good work. And here, in, in 14, he adds a word. I don't know if you caught it the first couple times that you read it, but Paul here in verse 14 says, but remind the people, let our people learn, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. And I don't think that's insignificant that he has learned. Paul's, Paul's hard. He's intentional. He's saying this is where you ought to be. This is what a, a believer does. And now he takes a step back and says, learn. Learn to devote yourselves to good works. Titus, you should be teaching the people to do this. But the people should also be learning in many ways to do this themselves. He emphasizes learn. Learn to devote yourselves to good works. And he says, in order that they may help cases of urgent need. I think for, for the first century believers, sometimes it was hard to differentiate between what, what is top priority here? What is a priority? Uh, the gospel is being preached. And in, in Acts, you see uh, some people say, well, we shouldn't all devote ourselves to setting up tables, so let's have some people set up tables and uh, some people go preach the gospel. And so they're balancing this thing often of what, what is of utmost importance. Is it preaching the gospel or is it caring for the sick and the widows? And the answer really is both. Uh, it just depends on where the Lord has called you and where he's gifted you. And so in this case, Paul says to, to Titus and the Cretans to devote yourselves to good works, uh, seeing that the cases of urgent need are cared for. Daily cases that are necessary um, are good works too. It's, good, it's a good work to care for the widows, for the sick, for those urgent things that come up. He says, do not be unfruitful. Doing good, caring for the flock, and building up the church is fruitful. Stirring up division, spending your time on controversies, Things that don't advance the gospel or the kingdom, that is unfruitful. Don't be unfruitful. 
He says, in the end, those who are with me send their greetings. And then he says, grace be with you all. Almost the same ending as First and Second Timothy, except one word is added, all. The U is plural. Meaning the letter wasn't just intended for Titus. It was intended for the church. It's intended for those people in Titus's fellowship that would hear this and so maybe encouraged by Paul. I have two application points for you there on your back on the back of your worship folder. Application number one, avoid meaningless and vain pursuits. Maybe you guys aren't arguing about Maybe we aren't arguing about genealogies and the Mosaic Law. It would be strange if we were. But maybe what we're arguing about uh, is things that have already come to your mind, I'm sure. The Holy Spirit has reminded you. Things like politics, vaccines, masks, news, sports, social media, What's taking up your mental space? What are you meditating on? Have you ever been on a laptop or on your phone and hoping for something and watching it and then you realize to yourself that maybe this is an idol for you at the moment? Maybe this needs to not be there? If it's not advancing the kingdom, then maybe it's not fruitful. Are you meditating on the things of this world or are you meditating on the things of the Lord? Are your conversations being hamstrung by things like politics, sports, news, social media drama? Or are they being used to advance the kingdom? If you win people to your side of the vaccine debate, but you don't win people to the kingdom... How is that going to matter in a hundred years? Our, our purpose on this earth is to win souls to Christ. The reason that you're a believer and that you have breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins is because you have kingdom work to do. I have kingdom work to do. So we must, together, learn to devote ourselves to good works and not to be distracted by things that don't matter. America will come and America will go, but the kingdom of God will last forever. That's where we should be investing. So help us all to avoid these things. And I fall into this trap too. I fall into this trap that the world sets of of being concerned about current events or what's going on or what the next orders will be or what's going to happen with reopening, whatever it may be. I get concerned about that. And then the Lord gently pushes me back, maybe not gently sometimes, pushes me back and reminds me, where's my hope? Is my hope in political leaders? Is my hope in America? Is my hope in, I mean, a Detroit sports team? That would be very foolish. Uh, No, it can't be. My hope must be in God. My hope must be in God. I was talking to a 
friend this week, uh, very similar situation. They had, they had hope in uh, a different thing than the person of God. And it was important to remind, a reminder for both of us that, that our hope must be in the Lord and in him alone, that he himself will have victory. It's not to say that you shouldn't have an opinion about things or you shouldn't be learned or you shouldn't be up to date. It just means don't obsess over it. These things are pulling you away from the kingdom. If your conversations are, are lit up by these things and it's not advancing the kingdom, take a step back, reevaluate. Is this helpful or is this not? And this is something that I, I mess up on every week. Is this helpful for the kingdom? Is this not? It's good to think about these things when we overemphasize winning people over to a camp and politics, vaccination, news, etc. And we never try to win them over to the gospel. We've wasted our time and we've squandered our talent. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon. Prayers that we would be ready. Application number two, pursue good works. Pursue good works. What are these things that bring unity and bring the Father glory? What are these things that advance the kingdom? We must pursue these above all else. If you're having difficulty today uh, pursuing good works or, or doing these things that, that bring kingdom significance, uh, my prayer is that, as Paul says at the end, that we would learn, that we'd learn to do these things. What are the needs in this church family that need to be met? We believe the truth of Jesus, that this is now your brother and your sister and your mother. How do your brother and sister and mother need to be met? To the young people, how many of the older people in here have you met? Some of these life stories are, are begging to be encouraging to you in your situation. To the older people in here, how many of the younger people have you met? People that might not have nuclear families here maybe need to be taken under your wing and not just the youth pastor's wing. Uh, Is there a way that we can be encouraging and multi-generational as a church? That's something that I love about Village. Um, Talking to a brother who's a pastor in another church and... uh, some of his frustrations is that the youth are in a different building and aren't part of the main service and aren't having any families there and just aren't even considered among the members of the church. I love seeing youth sitting with people older than them, not family members. I love that. I know there's intentionality here. Uh, I think that we can do more on both sides. There doesn't need to be a divide, but unity, a working together for the glory of God. So let's learn to do these things that build up the kingdom. Let's advance the kingdom. Advance the kingdom. We learn to do good works so to bring God glory. Prayers that God would be glorified in us and through us throughout our weeks. That we would care for each other in the church. That we would care for the daily cases of urgent need. Uh, It's very encouraging to see every time there's a Facebook post on our page that people care for cases of urgent need. 
And so I implore those of you who have urgent needs that you'd share, that you'd allow the church to care. And for those that hear urgent needs, that you would care and that you'd so be the hands and the feet of God. I'm going to pray, and then I have some announcements for you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement here uh, to learn to do good works, that we might be united and not stir up division. Lord, help us as a body to be one as you and the Father are one. Help us to be family, to not be distracted by uh, these things that can pull us apart or turn us aside from truth. Help us to be devoted to you. Lord, we, we pray that you would take up our mental space, that we'd be meditating on you and not on world events. Lord, help us to pursue you well. In Jesus' name, amen.